Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking about Sly Stone, out with a new memoir at age 80. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we have new albums by The Feelies and Robert Finley to review. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. That's a little bit of waste of time from the new Robert Finley record, Black Bayou, his fourth studio album. Third with uh, the Black Keys' Dan Arbach producing and releasing it on his Easy Eye sound label. Uh, Some of you may already be familiar with Robert Finley if you've listened to this show. We had a wild interview with Robert. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Uh, That was in early 2022, uh, show number 842 for those of you who want to look it up and listen to it. It's well worth your time. He is quite, you know, saying he's quite a character sounds like, well, everybody's a character. He's He's a character. Yeah. I mean, well, he's one even of in kind. our extensive decades yeah. <laughs> and decades long of interviewing people, that interview stood out. Yeah, amazing. Uh, he's had an amazing life. Uh, he is a, uh, you know, pushing 70. Talk about a late bloomer, right? He grew mm-hmm. up in the Jim Crow era South, Louisiana to be precise, attended a segregated school, sang gospel in church as a kid. Uh, was a street busker for most of his life. Uh, he would did all sorts of odd jobs, carpenter, etc. But when he was declared legally blind, so he couldn't work anymore, you know, he started to do this street thing where he was uh, singing for pocket change. Uh, got discovered, landed a spot in America's Got Talent. <laughs> Jim, if you haven't seen, he reached the semifinals. If you have not seen the clip i think it's on youtube i i sort of looked it up i want to see did this really happen and the judges on there watch this blind singer wow the judges with an original song don't they have like <laughs> juggling dogs and stuff like that uh, you know I mean, it's just like so odd but uh. there's robert finley but the guy's got talent you know and arbach um you know who's a big fan of hill country blues and mm-hmm. and southern culture in general with the black keys uh, sort of took him, uh, took him in and said, "Hey, let's make a, let's make some cool music together." So this latest record, Black Bayou, has got uh, uh, Arbach producing and playing a bunch of instruments. Uh, the great Kenny Brown, Hill Country Blues uh, legend, uh, yeah. on guitar. Yeah, there are some, uh, there are some tasty licks. <laughs> absolutely, and Arbach's collaborator in Black Keys, Patrick Carney, on drums as mm-hmm. well. Uh, let's listen to a track from uh, Black Bayou before we review it. It's What Goes Around Comes Around from Robert Finley on Sound Opinions.
That is Robert Finley with What Goes Around, parentheses, Comes Around. Greg, I'll just, I won't bury the lead, as we say in journalism. I am really disappointed by this album. I think it is hugely inconsistent. There are moments of true soulful insight into who Finley is at age 70. Nobody wants to be lonely. Mm-hmm. Finds him visiting what he calls the old folks home right. to see an old friend. Uh, and nobody wants to die alone. And, and you know, when are you coming back? The friend says, as soon as I can. It's really touching for a 70-year-old man to be talking about that. In gospel blues, when he imagines getting to heaven and dancing all over the place. (laughs) dance all over the place. Later on, he sings, my best years are behind me because of my age, but I won't stop living until I'm in my grave. That lust for life, that be here now, that, that, that is the message, as far as I'm concerned, of all great popular music. However... Mr. Finley is stuck in a different decade, Greg, when a pretty woman sends him an invitation. He just can't turn them down. (laughs) Okay, good for him, right? But the vehemence with with which he laces into his lap-dancing girlfriend for sneaking around, Um, when he sings, I tried to make love to you, uh, that ain't no crime, but if you don't want it, baby, you can't blame me for trying— um, you know, that's a little stalkerish and mm. it and it bugs me. You know, Miss Kitty, uh, which is just the title repeated many times, is not nearly as clever or whatever he thinks it is. Um, I think Auerbach is is overawed by Finley's voice, which is an incredibly soulful, wonderful instrument, and his story and his talent. Uh but boy did this album need a producer slash editor uh, to temper some of these impulses because it's one thing to listen to the chess uh, records electric blues from the 50s you know mm. and 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 get some of that from muddy waters or helen wolf you know which i will point out were always balanced by coco taylor as well and it's another thing in 2023 and no i'm not getting woke or pc it's just I don't think that's good art, especially not compared to Nobody Wants to Be Lonely or Gospel Blues. Well, you know, sort of criticizing the blues for not being PC is sort of like, you know, that's disingenuous, I think, to an extent, because it's always been anti-PC. It's, you know, it's been very straightforward. Not all of the songs uh, hold up in terms of today's standards. He's, you know, he's a 70-year-old guy coming from that tradition. Um, My problem with that more so than oh it's not pc enough is it's boilerplate well yeah we've kind of heard this stuff before many many times you know and he's clearly a talent he's the vocal nuances between that sandpaper grit and then he goes into that falsetto that sense of yearning yeah uh and then there's those little vocal sides it's like he's breaking that fourth wall and he's talking to us the yeah. listener, as opposed to the you know the, the narrator. Oh, of the he songs. can be very funny talking he, about his grandfather taking him out uh, to hunt alligator as alligator and bait, using him as bait. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of funny, but it's not. And he was able to right. you know he's able to to sort of fold all these kind of uh, impulses and emotions into that song that that last song on the album. Uh, and and you know little nuances like you know that gospel blues where he's talking about the impossibility of being good, being a saint. Mm-hmm. You know I can't. Uh, yeah, I drink a little whiskey. He's talking to God now. You yeah, know he's unapologetic I'm, about I'm it. I'm screwing up. You know, but you know you'll forgive me again, won't you, please? You know. Uh, so so that stuff and you know nobody wants to be lonely. Just a heartbreakingly great song. You'd mentioned that as, you know, about highlight, visiting an old yeah. friend who's been abandoned by his family at old right. age. We right. we know those people. Um, we've met them. There's some some of them are in our own family. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. kind of, it's one of those so- kinds of songs. But yeah, about I thought Sharecropper's Son, the previous album, which is the occasion that we yeah. had him on for an interview, was a masterpiece. That was a, a great a record. late career classic. This is not that album. It's ha- about half... Halfway there, but it's not all the way there.
is a little bit of Oh Sweet Nothing, the Velvet Underground song covered by the Feelies on this new album, Mr. Cut, that you and I were both thrilled to uh, hear about and then to listen to. Some Kind of Love, the Feelies performing the music of the Velvet Underground. Um, We do not, as a rule, cover live albums. (laughs) We do not, as a rule, cover cover albums, right? But the Feelies are one of the bands, I'd say, in both of our careers that have meant the Mm -hmm. most to us. Coming together in the late punk era in New York City, although they were from the suburbs of New Jersey, famously leafy, tree-lined, hailed in New Jersey, really uh, redefining, I think, rock and roll rhythms with that debut album, Crazy Rhythms, making a big impact in the indie rock era, paving the way toward the alternative explosion and then disappearing for quite a few years. Then, regrouping. We haven't heard a new studio album from the Feelies since 2017, in between. We reviewed it at the time. Uh, Only been six studio albums over the course of those many decades, but always uh, rewarding to both of us in terms of the way those two guitars of Bill Million and Glenn Mercer interact and the way those crazy rhythms are delivered by... uh, by the two drummers, uh, Stan Domeski, Dave Wackerman, and the great bassist Brenda Souter. We've covered Feely's offshoot bands. We've covered, you name it, we've covered the Feely's over the years. So how could we not review a double album of the Feely's covering a band that I think meant uh, more to them than any other, uh, the Velvet Underground? Uh, Especially given, uh, Greg, that we are going to be interviewing Will Hermes uh, soon on that 10 years in the making epic biography he's written about Lou Reed. We were going to put this review with that Mm -hmm. chat, but the chat is so good we didn't want to cut a minute of it. This is the feelies doing what goes on from the third Velvet Underground album, although I think they'd agree with the two of us, Greg. Mm. The definitive version is 1969 live. Right, that's the one. That is What Goes On by The Feelies doing a very good impression of the Velvet Underground on their covers album, Some Kind of Love, live performance uh, from 2018 in Jersey. Uh, what a what a night. Uh, you I know, wish I was there. We've seen, the, we've seen The Feelies many, many times. They inevitably cover a bunch of songs uh, that they love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the, the Velvets being a, a primary source of material for them when they're looking for a cover. Um, you know, and it's been true from the start. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about the Velvet's influence on uh, bands of the subsequent decades after the, uh, the Velvet's basically broke up in 1970. Um, and the Feelies are, are exhibit A. They, yeah. they are one of those bands that it channels that legacy uh, directly into their music. What goes on is an example of where every instrument is a, is, is a drum pulling that yeah, song forward yeah, yeah. and that's the feely sound right there i yeah. mean that if you would say what's the one velvet song that most directly influenced what the feelies became it's that song they do a great version of it here the other thing that i noticed about this jim i mean you know you and i know these songs backward and forward but mercer glenn mercer um his vocals uh he's usually very dry and deadpan yeah. in a lou reedish sort of way but the way his the, the the passion the emotion that he's showing, uh, where he's sort of rising to to this righteous empathy on like Sweet Jane, you mm-hmm. know, or I'm waiting for the man. He gets really more animated there, and and just the Mercer be just being more outward, you know, passionate about what he's singing because I think he's enjoying singing these songs so much they meant he so much to him fun yeah you know <laughs> and he's showing it and it's great to hear that from glenn who's normally pretty no, the feelies uh, are, are a reticent band Greg. Yeah. i've known them my entire adult life you know and uh you know like i haven't seen you in person jim in 10 years glenn and bill will be like hi jim <laughs> 
they're very well, and they're all they're all just generally quiet people. And and the right. other one, Brenda Souter, you know, um, you know, we we talked about some of her solo projects Wild earlier. Uh, and and she's wonderful, uh, but you don't really hear her singing a whole bunch of leads, and and she gets a couple on this on this record. All tomorrow's party, she does a great Nico. Yeah, you know, and after hours, and after hours, it's perfect for her. Beautiful yeah. Mo Tucker. You know, listen, uh, my thoughts on knowing this band uh, as well as, as any that I've known in my life uh, are, uh, yes, they are having a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, number two, they are uh, really illuminating some of the the less well-known corners of the Velvet's uh, mm-hmm. canon. Uh, I love hearing Oh Sweet Nothing. I'm remiss to yeah. point out that uh, that was Richard Barone of the Bongos on vocals on that one. The same was way it, Doug was Yule. It, was, was it Mastro? No, 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 Mastro. Uh, he sang the lead, and I can't stand it. So they brought yeah. a, he brought Barone out. They on brought for, both bongos, right? Yeah, okay. But this was a Hoboken homecoming, gotcha. although it happened in Jersey City yeah. at White Eagle Hall. Uh, way back in 2018, the pandemic kind of derailed uh, Bill and Glenn from uh, finishing mm-hmm. uh, production of this record. Uh, you know, but Bill and Glenn move at, at the Stonecutter's pace anyway. Right. They're famous for that. But anyway, they're, they're, they're digging deep. Not only do we get some of... Uh, you know, the classic Sunday morning opens the album. Uh, but, you know, we get some of those great pop songs that could have been hits, should have been hits yeah. on Loaded. Who Loves the Sun, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Head Held High. Yeah. I love that song. And, you know, New Age. Yeah, right? that's a great song. Man, that sent me into the, the, the deep dive mm-hmm. of... Uh, you know, uh, can I have your autograph? He mm-hmm. said to the fat blonde actress, I've seen every movie you've been in from uh, Paths of Pain to Road to Glory. Right? Mm-hmm. None of that exists. Right. Lou Reed was inventing right. a, a career with this actress then kissing Robert Mitchum. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like I've been living with the Velvets. I wrote a book on the Velvets. You were in it. Um, you know, and I, and I never bothered to look that up before. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a treasure. So it's not just a souvenir of one night you wish you were at. I think it's another way to illuminate one of the most important bands in rock history by another, dare I say, of the most important bands of rock history. This is like, if you wanted to ask Jim Deergast, what would your ultimate Christmas present be? It would be this record. (laughs) I bought it on vinyl. That's how much I'm loving it. Right. Well, that's what we thought of the new releases from Robert Finley and the Feelies. And now we want to hear from you. Were we off on either of these albums? Is there a record you think we should check out? Leave us a message about those topics or anything on our website, soundopinions.org, and we often like to play those messages on the show. Coming up, we'll share our thoughts on Sly Stone's memoir and use that to revisit our interview with members of the Family Stone. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island's been brewing beers in the spirit of Chicago. You can find IPAs, lemonade, shandy, and limited releases in-store or at one of Goose's venues in Chicago. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's beer. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been brewing award-winning beers in Chicago that are inspired by this city. Take 312 Lemonade Shandy, Tropical Beer Hug Double IPA, and a rotating series of hazy IPAs only available in Chicago. Uh, you know, every time we go down to Goose Island, there's another one that they're pushing on us. That's right. You and know, they're all good. Absolutely. And uh, what supporters of, of musical culture, you know, in, in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, if you go to a show in Chicago and you see that Goose Island uh, sign, you know, you know when you're in good hands. Uh, they're music fans as well as great uh, beer makers at Goose Island, so we're really proud to be associated with them. The Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. And we're back. Sly Stone's an all-time musical genius. I mean, I think yep. we can all agree on that. Uh, the run of albums from 1968 to 71 with the Family Stone, that's just absolutely 
incredible. Uh, you know, I, and I, I would say even let's go to 73 because that he had nine top 40 hits from mm-hmm. 67 mm-hmm. through 73. Uh, you know, was, you know, when, when people talk about Woodstock making careers, I mean, Sly Stone's name is first on that list at the very top. It was a career-making performance. I doubt that there was anybody bigger in the country at that point in, in terms of the American culture. No. And, uh, you know, he, you know, he's showing up on talk shows. Dick Cavett and Mike yeah. Douglas had him on. <laughs> and this guy was a raconteur, a first-rate raconteur. I mean, he did it all. Uh, when you think about an artist like Prince, think about Sly Stone as being but, a major, major you know, influence on the, that. The, the witticism of the lyrics, the way he loved wordplay, the... Uh, uh, boundaries he broke with the multiracial uh, pansexual band, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, that merger of sound. There's Beatles in there and, and pop and rock and funk and soul and some of those things weren't even defined as genres yet and he's putting his stamp on them. Now, we're talking about ancient history in some ways because, you know, I did say like 73 is pretty yeah. much the end of the run. Well, why is that? The guy was pretty young yeah. when that happened. And he deals with what happened uh, in his uh, new memoir, which I think is a minor miracle that we're hearing from Sly Stone after all this time. Every uh, review I've seen begins with that. Here's a book we never thought we'd get. Uh, thank you for letting me be myself again. Yeah, co-written. Uh, ben Greenman was his um, uh, not not so much a ghostwriter because he's given credit on the on the cover of the book, uh, but Sly. Um, you know, you and I both read this book in prep for this show, Jim, and. Um, I have to say, Questlove published the book. Yeah, a new new printing house, Questlove. uh, Drummer of the Roots, and he intros the book, and even he hints in his little (laughs) uh, introduction that, well, I was hoping for a little bit more, you know, more detail. I'm not sure Sly remembers it all, because... The, the last chunk of the book is a kind of a sad story of a, a great, yeah. a genius's decline uh, in the grip of drugs, which he could never fully shake uh, over the subsequent decades. It took, took four attempts at rehab mm-hmm. and has only recently become uh, clean, and here he is at age 80. Um, had a relationship with a woman who was his manager, who encouraged this late, 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 late career mm-hmm. resurgence. You know, Greenman has previously uh, done uh, bios, uh, collaborated with Brian Wilson and George Clinton. Mm -hmm. He specializes in difficult characters, but I think even by the difficult standards of those two, uh, he didn't do much to Sly Stone. It's a disappointingly slight book, uh, and as many music memoirs are. Yeah. uh, I think in large part because a lot of these artists are checked out in long stretches of their career because mm-hmm. of various extracurricular activities. In case of Sly, it's amazing that he's still alive, right? Um, still, uh, you know, he some glib comments, some things where I laughed out loud because his, his right. wit is still there, you can tell. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that he doesn't remember. You can tell, yeah. tell he's watching himself on TV and commenting on, oh, this is what I would, you well, know, he, Cavett made me feel uncomfortable when he asked this. He's picking clearly, apart these yeah. old TV and uh, interviews and, and reading reviews of his records, right. you know, to remember. And then he's taking issue with them. Well, meanwhile, you know, the glibness of, of the awful things he did, numerous run-ins with police and, you know, lives he treated uh, that were key people to him so cavalierly. I mean, he was awful, as many addicts are. Yeah. And he treats it as just kind of, I did this, I did that. You know, I was thinking what Sly needed more than anything is a great, great journalistic biography along the lines of what uh, rj smith did with chuck berry and with uh, uh james brown right, right? right um you know uh, we are journalists it might sound self-serving to say this but you know the the behind the scenes the other perspectives uh you know we we got joel selvin a longtime san francisco uh music journalist did like an oral history mm-hmm. Ugh, you know it, that shed no light we we needed real serious journalism and to the extent that sly's voice could be in the book it would be useful uh but this on its own is just a major disappointment that leaves you wanting well what's 
what's the story? How? You know, the, the most we get is a little bit of insight into the recording of There's a Riot going on, but the other albums come and go, and mm-hmm. we have no sense of him writing those songs or making those albums. And, and they were gigantic albums, gigantic yeah. musical achievements. I mean, everybody goes on and on about the multiracial, uh, you know, uh, makeup of the band but to me the, the the sense of what that band produced the diversity of music the, the music was astonishing i mean he was touching on everything from cuban music to latin to country and western to psychedelia uh in the first record a whole new thing he called it in 1967 which echoes to me ornette coleman saying change of the century or the shape yeah. of jazz to come uh, he was doing the same thing with with R&B and soul and er- everything else that was in the air, in the ether at that yeah. time sort of bringing it together on one record and the first album was was kind of scattered but by the time he got to dance to the music and uh life and stand he was at the top of his game there was no more no. innovative artist on the planet at that time the thing that kills me about this book jim that's never really fully answered is how disciplined he was mm-hmm. in his early life, and he's very clear about those early beginnings, the family roots, his work as a DJ, his, his, his very attentiveness in, in school. He went to community college and, and was working with, with music professors there, yeah. studying music, getting better at it. He knew what he wanted to do. Becoming a multi-instrumentalist. Right. Right. He had a vision. He had the means of executing the vision. He could do everything himself, but he parceled out these jobs to, you know, family and friends. Mm-hmm. You know, he created this amazing band from his from his uh, community north of San Francisco in Vallejo, California, right. and, and, and ended up ruling the world for the next uh, close to a decade, and then it fell apart because of the gone. drugs. What happened to that disciplined yeah. guy is yeah. completely lost in that stuff. Well, and it was not the 60s drugs, uh, you know, the yeah. uh, psychedelic uh, damage that Brian Wilson or Sid Barrett suffered. You know, it was cocaine and then crack. Yeah, right. Uh, awful stuff. Awful, awful, awful stuff. And it's a damn shame. And at the same time, we still have the music, yes. which when you go back and listen to that, it's celebratory. It's also incredibly deep. There's a tragic glow to it. There's a riot going on. Still one of the masterpiece album albums yeah. of that era. You know, as a black artist making a front-to-back conceptual album mm-hmm. at that stage was truly groundbreaking and, and truly important, you know. Well, that's, and, what, that's what this show is about, the mm-hmm. music. And that's why we wanted to revisit our interview with uh, Sly's uh, Family Stone band members, Jerry Martini and Cynthia Robinson. That's a rare 1967 recording of I Ain't Got Nobody For Real by Sly and the Family Stone. It's the Lodestone Records single that helped the band win its Epic Records deal in 1968, leading to the landmark release Dance To The Music. It's an influence that can still be seen and heard today. You know, Sly Stone and his multiracial co-ed septet from Northern California, I mean, that was really groundbreaking back then, of how a band should look and how it could sound. Bridging rock, funk, Motown R&B, soul with Miles Davis jazz, it was all in that stew. And this band had it all. I mean, virtuoso musicians, guitarist Freddie Stone, bass player Larry Graham, drummer Greg Arico, keys player Rose Stone, and trumpeter Cynthia Robinson, along with sax player Jerry Martini, plus one of the most charismatic frontmen in music history. But, Greg, in 1975, this charming star who stole the show at Woodstock and with Dick Cavett dropped out of public, as we've said. Drugs took their toll and would for decades. Since then, only occasional glimpses of Sly coming back, none bigger than that memoir we just talked about. But for the most part, the legend lives on in the recordings. So in 2014, we spoke to two of the core members of his band, Jerry Martini, Cynthia Robinson. Cynthia has since died, 2015. But we began by asking Jerry about his role in forming the group. I was the official nudge. I used to just go on the radio station and bother him, and, and him and I played together in a couple different bands before, and uh, we were the backup band for his singing group, too. And he was just my friend. I used to go, 
be amazed. I'll go over his house in, in San Francisco, and he would pull out his book of songs, and I would just, as soon as I could close my mouth, I was so in awe. You know, I I just went home and vowed never to try to write again, you know, after I saw what he was doing. I was part of the team, and I was the guy who had the station wagon, and I'd go pick up Larry and Cynthia for our first gig. And we played down in Losers North. We'd all come in together. It was it was really a unit. What a unit, though, right, Jerry? I mean, in terms of, you know, you Absolutely. look at Cynthia, Sly's brother Fred, Larry Graham, Greg Rico, yourself. Did it occur to you, multiracial co-ed band? Not something you saw every day in that period, or even now, for that matter. In your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Did well, you kind you of... Know, it, you know. it, it didn't. Not, not for me, because uh, uh, I played in school, and there were... It was multiracial, yeah. you know, uh, musicians in, in the bands in uh, junior high and high school. But mm-hmm. this was an ideal well, that Sly believed in, right, Jerry? Because I heard he had to get between you and some Black Panthers who thought you shouldn't be in this band. Well, they knew I shouldn't be in the band, you know, and they was about two inches away from whipping my booty, you know, and uh, and Sly just he Sly used to save my ass all the time. They really wanted him bad, and Sly didn't want to be no part of no renegade or in like not renegade, but uh, a unit that that preached so much hate. Okay, there was a lot of hate in the Panthers and. They had a lot of points. There was a lot of good people that belonged at that organization. But Sly, he had compassion for everybody's uh, plight in those days. Yeah. But he didn't want to be a part of the Panthers. He didn't. Uh, he didn't want somebody to tell him who he can have in his band. That's why when people start booing me the first time I played at the Apollo Theater, he stopped the whole thing. You know, and he made me play by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't look close enough. And Sly taught them that they should maybe look inside a little bit, you know. Yeah. And uh, so when I was playing, I I grew up listening to the blues. I grew up befriending Sly at a young age, and I marveled at his genius. Complex band, mix of all these cultures. The music, too, reflected that. That uh, 67 debut album, well-titled, A Whole New Thing. I want to give the horn players some, because the horn lines on advice, for example. You know, not exactly novice horn lines. The fact that you were kind of touching on country and western and I cannot make it, that Latin feel and trip to your heart, the more sophisticated level of pop that in, in a song like I Hate to Love Her. Nobody knew what to make of this record, right, when it came out in, in 67. Who is the nobody? You, you see what I'm saying? It's, the nobody isn't, isn't really the people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the nobody is usually somebody in the, up in the office. The record company executives yeah. did not understand it. Yes. They yeah. would bring us people that wanted to sound like. So they said, why can't you sound like our other actor, The Fifth Dimension? And Sly said... No way, man. <laughs> we, I mean, we respected them. We loved their yeah. Aquarius, and they were cute, good-looking, and their harmony was perfect. But it was all the harmonies back then were all parallel harmony, and Sly hated parallel harmony. He hated triadal stuff. You know, he was the first pop guy to really bring sevenths and ninths and and thirteenths and and all that stuff into it. The, uh, the people that understood him were the other musicians. We were a musician's band. You were harmonically innovative, but also the mix on those records, where Sly was putting the bass guitar and the snare drum front and center, almost even above the vocals. I, I've heard a lot of hip-hop producers talk about how radical that was. Yeah, well, you That's know... why they copied it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you, what I loved about his writing is that he, he didn't write bass lines for a conventional bass player. A lot of stuff is very melodic. I know a lot of people talk about him writing a song where the bass player paid one note, 
but you could take that rhythm section and just make a whole new song out of it, which has been done. Well, Ike and Tina Turner did Bold Soul Sister with that. I'm a bold soul sister, You talk about the complicated nature of the first record, the musician's record, as you describe it so well, Jerry. In 68, with Dance to the Music, did, with, that, with that album, did you feel like Sly was making a turn? Like, okay, I've got to make this a little bit more accessible to, yes. to people? He told me. He says, I'm still going to make, it's still going to be innovative, like, because we were the first ones to have it be like, okay, we do Larry's part. He introduced everybody in the band on there. He said, I'm going to give them something that I know they can all understand. So uh, not everybody uh, was willing to listen close enough to understand our first album, Mm -hmm. starting with the record company executives. Uh. Every gig that we went to, they enjoyed it. They appeared to me to enjoy it because we played most of the stuff on stage. You know, and that was one of the things that Sly said he, when he was recording, he wanted to be able to reproduce it on stage. So a lot of new material getting tested out on the road before it actually made it on the record, and that's the way you sort of hone these uh, these songs. Yeah. In terms of that recording process, though, Cynthia, i got to ask you about Dance to the Music itself, that track where you and Jerry get the shout-out in the song a couple of times. Cynthia and Jerry got a message that says, and then you're credited with ad-libs on the record. And and your response to that line was, was what? All the squares go home. <laughs> <laughs> Did you come up with that on the spot, or was that something you'd been thinking about ahead of time, or how did how'd that well, come out? Well, uh, no, it was just Sly running down the song before we uh, attempted to record it, and uh, like in the beginning, get up and dance to the music. He said, you know, he just all he said was, "Don't sing it." Mm-hmm. He didn't want me to sing it. He just wanted me to talk. And that took a couple of takes because I kept forgetting. <laughs> she got that signature voice, though, you know. Sly, he could pick up on things. That when I played my clarinet on Dance and the Music and the little subhook thing, that was the accident. I just happened to have my clarinet there, and it was snowing outside. And the union guy was going to come. So he said, bring an instrument. So I brought my clarinet. <laughs> That's great. And he walked by, and he heard it. He put it on the thing. Obviously, funk became huge in the 70s, but a lot of people credit that song with starting uh, starting that whole genre of music. I mean, do you, do you look back and say, oh, yeah, that, that, it, that was a different sound. That was a left turn uh, that became a whole whole new style of music. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, you well, know. The, the drum beat that he did became um, the basis for hip-hop, you know. That later on, that you used to listen to rap music and say, damn, mm-hmm. that's our stuff. And the rappers <laughs> will tell you that. Sure. You know? Oh, yeah. You, you guys have been sampled so much, it's ridiculous. That's a little bit of the Roots track, Star Pointro, which samples Sly Stone's Everybody is a Star. We'll have more memories from Family Stone members Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini in just a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Sly and the Family Stone's 1969 hit, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. This is an interview from 2014 with Family Stone members Jerry Martini and the late Cynthia Robinson. 
Greg, songs like Thank You always have been inspiring to me lyrically. You know, in this era of the Woodstock Nation and this utopian community ideal, half a million strong, the hippies will rule the world, right? All of that stuff. Sly is saying, no, everybody, every one of you, be yourselves. You are the star. To me, that's what endures. So I wanted to know how important that message was to Sly. Here's Cynthia Robinson. Well, just the fact that he said it at all meant that it meant something to him because he, he didn't waste his time with the uh, idle conversation. Mm-hmm. If and, and when he mentioned it, it wasn't like a command. It was just him talking to another human being. And this it was something that Freddie and Rose understood because they'd been doing this, you know, many years. He was so into the acoustics of the uh, venues that we played that he knew exactly how to set, well, he knew how to set my mics and what type of mics to use for my horn mm-hmm. in the studio and something different on stage. Well, you know, he had that background as a producer prior to Sly and the Family Stone. He'd been doing all these bands, the Bo Brummels, the yes. Mojo Men, Bobby Freeman, which I believe you played in for a while, right, Jerry? I, I did uh, most of his uh, recordings. I, I just was a part of the band in mm-hmm. there. He knew his way around the studio. He was a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he had a vision. Right. He had a vision for this group. Yeah. Yes, he was absolutely a visionary person. You know, he also had the ability to control large groups of people, one way or another. He could stop a riot, or he can start a riot. Mm. He had that power. Well, you know, there's a riot going on. Is is it? No, deep... that's what you call it. Ah. Was it not That's perceived? That's what you call it. Well, I think it's a brilliant classic. I mean, one of the greatest albums ever made. But the complexity and the depth and the shadows that seem to hang over it. What? Why are we wrong, Cynthia or Jerry, uh, if that's not how it really was perceived at the because time? Because nobody stays the same through life. You know, once you... You're doing a lot of positive things, and, and, you know, you're dealing with people that are throwing negativity at you all the time. And so up the line, your idea about how you're going to deal with them is going to be different now because you're not going to keep on throwing them things your way while they keep on knocking you while you're down. And here's a cookie. So, you know you what I'm saying? So uh, you do change. You get you catch on. You know, like I caught on to the, the positive and the negative thing with him. You know what I'm saying? You catch on. So you do things a little bit different if you want to be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a dark time, right? I mean, Woodstock is followed by Altamont and, and there's riots in the streets of the states. And Dr. Martin Luther King is shot and Robert Kennedy yes. is shot. You can't leave because your heart is there. But you you can't stay cause you've been somewhere else. You can't cry cause you look broke down. But you're crying anyway cause you're all broke down. It's a family affair. There was this level of empowerment in a lot of his songs about, you know, everybody's a star. You know, you go from an album yes. like Stand in 69 where he's singing about everyday people. And he's singing about... Everybody's a star, and you can make it if you try. And then that beautiful single with strings, you know, adding the sophistication to his arrangements in with Hot Fun in the Summertime. You go from that vibe in 69 to 18 months later, and there's a riot going on. You know, in that 18 months, you went from this kind of powerful, uplifting kind of music to something like, thank you for talking to me, Africa.
it's clearly a lot darker shades. And did, did you see Sly sort of losing some of that sense of everybody's a star, I want to take you higher, to, you know, it's a pretty bleak world out there because we've experienced some of the things you were just describing. I mean, did you see his his sort of vision for what the group was change? No, I just saw it as an extension after you learn some things. And you're just speaking about things that other people notice too. His music was always about truth. You know, what he felt was actually going on. The brave and the strong survive. There's still positivity. It's just not lilies and tulips. (laughs) Also, when he moved to Los Angeles during that 18-month period, he was around a totally different musical environment, different social environment, and there was more things to write about, positive and negative, but he wasn't thinking negative when he wrote it. But it's not the same as being up here in the in the Bay Area in Vallejo. I, I ended up moving down to his house for about eight months. Mm. What did you see there? Because there's all sorts of stories about Sly sliding off the rails at that point with, with, with drug use, and that affected his mood and affected the way he was able to make music. What well, if- there was a few around. L.A., are you kidding? Sure. <laughs> you know? Uh, just understand that Sly's the leader of the group, and he told me once when I told him that you know people ought to know that this wasn't you being late this time you need to Mm -hmm. uh, somebody needs to tell them that you know this was some other member of the group or uh, some other situation and he said to me when you're the leader you take the credit or the blame a lot of things that were he was blamed for was not his Mm mm-hmm You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini, two of the founding members of Sly and the Family Stone. Now, Jerry, just a year after your triumph at Woodstock in 69, the band took a big hit after that show in Grant Park in Chicago, the one in July 27, 1970. You're going to play this big, free show. But before you made it to the stage, a riot broke out. Now, there's a lot of conflicting reports about what happened there crowd was apparently restless. There was over 100 people injured, including several police officers. But the media was saying that the band was late or refused to perform. And it's been speculated that the incident inspired the album title in 1971, There's a Riot Going On. But clearly, there seemed to be a lot more going on than how it was portrayed, right? Yeah, they needed a patsy, and we were it on that one. Well, I, I don't know the real reason for it, but when we were coming into you know, heading for the hotel in town. And Sly told us, just when you get to the room, just chill out and relax, and we don't have to be there until 5. While we're riding, it comes on the radio, and the radio says, uh, yeah, Sly and Family Stone will be here at 4 o'clock. I said, Sly, did you hear that? He said, yeah, yeah, but don't pay no attention to that. See, I got the contract right here. And he showed it to us in the back seat. Mm -hmm. So we got there earlier then we were supposed to be there so the car can get parked and we can get up, you know, to where we could get to on the stage. But they had already started riding, and some guy came out of there with his head split open, blood pouring all down over his body. And he was he came over to the limo, and he said, if I were you guys, I wouldn't even go up there. They jumped up on the stage and, and broke up the equipment and, and jumped on the band that was playing at the time. So... It was already in progress. This was supposed to be a free show. You know, a lot of people say... Then why were they complaining? Yeah, well... (laughs) Good question. It it, it is a good question. A lot has been hung on on that incident and and, and on the the group. And Sly got this national reputation for being a guy who wouldn't show up at shows, you know? It impacted our band. Mm -hmm. We had to put up a $50,000 bond to play anywhere after that. And back then, $50,000 like about... 300,000 now. Yeah, that's a lot of money. You know, and and it wasn't our fault. And we, uh, there was a lawyer that was suing the city of uh, of Chicago for what they had printed about us on the front page. So they printed a retraction. I think it was on page 47. <laughs> like yeah. that, saying, oh, well, it wasn't their fault. But it, the damage was already done. done. 
it, it actually really impacted our career, and it, it never really caught back on as much as it could have. Cynthia and Jerry, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to each pick a song that from that era that you love and tell tell us why. Well, for me, the thing that just, I don't know, just drove chills all over me was uh, We Love All Y'all. Unlike society's addiction. The way they enunciated and they that song was sang just so simple that it seems like it would be easy to do vocally, but uh, to put that emotion into it while you're singing the lyrics. It just, uh, it blows me away. Mm -hmm. Jerry, what about you? With me, it was was not um, our greatest hits album, which I loved, and all of our big hits. What the song that really grabs me, still does, is a song called Color Me True. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Color Me True, to me, just says, this is what it's about. It's about, I mean, do you take credit for somebody else's cooking? Do you litter the park when you think nobody's looking? Come on now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Color me true. Are you earning all of your money? Do you laugh at the boss's jokes when they run it? Color me true. I was never a, a top ten hit or anything. I think it could have been. I think it still could be. We've been talking to Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini of Sly and the Family Stone. It's been an honor, guys. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. Me too. That wraps up our 2014 chat with Jerry Martini and Cynthia Robinson of the Family Stone. They remembered (laughs) more than Sly seems to. Now we want to hear from you. What memories do you associate with Sly Stone? Did you read the memoir? What did you think? Leave us a voice message on soundopinions.org with your thoughts, and we can share them on the show. Greg, what do we have next week? Uh, Jim, we're going to do a deep dive into the career of Lou Reed because of the uh, new Will Hermes uh, biography of yeah. Lou, and we've a got decade Will on the in show. the making. Yeah, <laughs> decade in the making, and we, uh, you know, we could have spent a decade talking to Will about it. Yeah, we, uh, but we give you an hour of that. Uh, don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Max Hatlam, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. <laughs>